1: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
2: You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey,
3: you pressed play. You guys, somebody pressed play. Battle stations, everybody. It's time to podcast. Welcome, I'm Dessa, and this is Deeply Human, where we traipse off through the wilderness of our own minds to find out why we do the things we do. The star of this episode is pain. How we perceive it, and how it can change the way that we perceive ourselves. When I was a teenager, a coffee shop called Muddy Waters was where all the art and trouble happened. Muddy's was full of ex-addicts, stick-and-poke tattoos, Poets with their sketch pads, rappers and their skateboards, everybody falling in and out of love with one another, and almost nobody paying full price for the coffee. Sarah was one of the women who ran the place. She had long, messy, raspberry colored hair that was part PJ Harvey, part Little Mermaid, and she tolerated zero insolence from anybody. But if you got evicted, or fired, or pregnant, she was the port in the storm. A lot of regulars harbored crushes on Sarah. People respected her because she was clever and principled and brave. And she had this extra gravitas because we all knew that she was really, really sick and in a lot of
1: pain. I became acutely aware of this mystique thing, like the iconic sick white female. It always reminds me of Little Women, the like tragically ill pretty one who coughs up blood, talks really quietly and she's sickly and everyone loves her. And I found it so irritating.
3: (laughs) Sarah was diagnosed with diabetes when she was 18 months old and with several autoimmune diseases after that. She ended up needing a bunch of surgeries.
1: The extreme abdominal pain started when I was probably 16. Uh, Eventually I got a diagnosis that kind of explained it, but there's no real treatment for it. So I was in just constant, pretty excruciating abdominal pain.
3: To hurt is a private experience and difficult to discuss. I can't hold my pain up to the light for you to examine or drape it around your shoulders to see how it might fit. Pain is a room for one. Only you can enter, and sometimes you can't leave. Also, we don't have a great vocabulary for pain. We shave our perceptions of red into very fine slices. Vermilion, scarlet, crimson, maroon, cerise. But we don't name discrete pain sensations in the same way.
1: This is pretty graphic, but the only way I could ever think to describe it was that it felt like I was rotting. In my mind, if you cut open my abdomen, you would find just everything infected and flamed, cramping and rotting. It felt like death, but slow. But of course, no matter how vivid
3: the description, the only pain you can know intimately is your own. So let's burn you. (laughs) Okay, then. Let's burn me. That's Irene Tracy, a neuroscientist at Oxford. She studies exactly how humans perceive pain, which means she's often got to hurt them herself. We generally have
0: a sort of you know, torture chamber suite of every device known to man where we can burn or we freeze or we poke or we um, put, like, either you know, mustard oil on or um, chili
3: pepper cream on.
0: So what we have here is a little home-built device.
3: On the table between us, Irene's got a device about the size of a lunchbox. It's gray metal with dials and buttons, some duct tape, and a long black wire comes out one side that's connected to, like, a little circuit board-looking thing. A shiny square roughly the size of a postage stamp Irene presses it against the bare skin on the inside of my right forearm. So I can zip up 30 degrees in less than a second. Okay. It'll be a loud Nobody's beep
0: been even no. scarred or blistered. No. no. Okay. Um, well, we've had the odd burn, I'm not going to lie. Uh, you know, you get the odd thing happen. Okay. Obviously, it'll to be over 25 years. Uh, right, there'll be a loud beep. All right, are you
3: ready? I am. That hurts. So I would say that if one is just on the threshold of being coded as pain, yeah. Yeah. I would say that was a, I don't know, a three.
0: Okay, okay, so we can go up a little bit more then, which is always good. So we'll take it up just a a wee bit.
3: Okay, quick freeze frame here for a comment on pain scales. In medical environments, people are often asked to rank their pain on a scale of 1 to 10. You might have been asked to do it by your doctor –
1: But here's Sarah on why that's a problem. Everyone's scale is different because your 10 is always the worst pain you've ever had, but it's not the worst pain you could have. So your 10 changes over time. And over the course of 10 surgeries, that 10, the bar for a 10 got very high. You know, that's where I can't take a full breath. I can't cry. I can't talk. And then down to I can still live my daily life. And then sometimes I can't talk for 30 seconds because I'm in so much pain, but it's going to go away. I would give that a 4, but someone else might give it a 7 because it is so painful in that moment. Your standard for what's high changes.
3: It's easy to see how this sort of variance in patient reports could pose a challenge for their healthcare. If my 4 is your 7, how is the doctor supposed to know what sort of painkiller we need and in what dosage? One of us might be grinding our teeth till morning while the other winds up loopy and flirting with the night nurse. Okay, back to the lab. Wow. Okay. Wow was not the first word that came to mind. That is absolutely me trying to act tough in front of a microphone on the BBC while experiencing an unexpectedly intense dose of pain, which 100% left a mark. But let's zoom in on what exactly is going on inside the body at a moment like this. We come equipped with three distinct kinds of pain receptors. Thermal, chemical, and mechanical. The thermal receptors respond to temperature. The chemical ones sense harmful substances, like the pepper cream that Irene uses. And the mechanical ones are for when you just cut or bang or smash yourself. When you get hurt, these receptors send off a distress signal.
0: And the signals go whizzing in along nerves in your arms or your legs to your spinal cord, which is this big sort of channel sending signals up to the brain. It's not till the brain gets those signals that pain emerges.
3: Think of an orchestral score. You've got a lot of notes on paper, but until they're sounded by an instrument, there's no music. My burned arm doesn't actually hurt directly. The nerve signals have to be processed by my brain. If it doesn't register in the brain, there is no pain. And our brains take a lot of artistic license in the interpretation of these signals. If you're tired, the same signal might be amplified to hurt more. If you're distracted, say, by a pain researcher who is asking you to count backwards by sevens, you might hurt less. Let's see, 120, 113, 106, 99, 92.
0: Distraction's great, and that's a big sort of free analgesia or pain relief you can get. So you've got these incredible systems in the brainstem whose sole job it is is to communicate down to the bottom of the spinal cord where the signals are coming
3: in and just stop them at that point. So they don't come up, they don't come into the brain, you don't feel pain. Distraction actually works chemically to turn down the perception of pain. Even the fact that we think something is going to hurt can affect how much it really does. Corny expression uses, you know, you get the pain you expect, and you really do. To prove this point, Irene's done some very clever experiments with placebos. In one study, she recruited a bunch of research subjects willing to let her inflict painful burns on their legs. She asked them to rate their pain and recorded all their answers. Then she gave them an opioid through an IV drip. And as you'd expect, participants reported less pain while receiving the drug. If Irene stopped the IV, the pain ratings went up again. But here's the tricky bit. Irene occasionally deceived her subjects so that they thought they were receiving an opioid, when really they were just getting saline. And, lo and behold, when they believed they were on drugs, they really did feel less pain, even though they were essentially just getting an armful of contact solution. And brain scans supported this finding, showing less activity in pain-sensing regions of the brain when the participants were all placebo'd up. Irene's also tested the opposite scenario, where people who were receiving the opioid were told they were getting saline. So you've got the most powerful drug in 2,000
0: years, and in an instant, I can just manipulate their expectations, and by driving a
3: negative expectancy, we can just have it override the brain. For fellow word nerds, that's called the nocebo effect. Hey! A lot of variables influence pain perception, which means identical injuries do not necessarily hurt identically. If you and I got matching neck tattoos on the same day from the same artist, we might have totally different levels of pain. And if we returned in a week for a touch-up, we might have completely different experiences than on the first visit. What the science
0: has told us for 20 years is you cannot make a judgment call about what pain somebody should be having based on what you can measure out in their tissue damage. What they say it is, is what it is because it is
3: this private subjective experience. So far, we've talked about acute pain, the garden variety that surges in whenever we damage our bodies somehow. But chronic pain functions differently.
0: Historically, i.e. 10, 15 years ago, we thought if we fix the thing that caused the pain,
3: then the chronic pain will go away. And that model hasn't worked. Nobody's sure why some injuries just go on hurting and hurting for months or years. You can't predict who's going to go chronic or why. In the U.S., chronic pain affects something like one in five adults, just a huge number of people.
0: So the pain field has sort of had a paradigm shift in their thinking is that when somebody has, after three, four months, gone chronic, so to speak, mm. that's a whole new set of problems in its own right. Right. All your life's journey, all your bumps and scrapes and stresses and emotional experiences, uh, the way that the environment changes and colours your genetics, so all that is changing the way, because your central nervous system, your brain, is wildly developing throughout this period, you know, growing, wiring up different bits. Literally, so, literally, your life's journey changes your brain.
3: My friend Sarah's pain confused
1: her doctors for a long time. I think I hadn't experienced that many... Women have is that I was told that it literally was impossible that I was in pain because the disease I'd finally been diagnosed with doesn't cause pain. There's not like an MRI or a CAT scan or a PET scan or anything that can point to what it was, but it, what it was, I realized later, was an inflammation of my entire digestive tract from my throat all the way down through my colon.
3: Talking about pain is challenging because it's a private experience and because we've got a poverty of language for it. But also, it just
1: sucks, socially. There's a whole bunch of taboos around illness and speaking about it, even in your most intimate relationships. So there is pressure on the patient to pretend like they are okay, and there is pressure on the other people in the room to also pretend it's okay.
3: Family and friends act weird. Acquaintances treat you with kid gloves, Even rivals go soft when they hear you're in the hospital.
1: And I'm like, dude, no, it's okay. Like, if you hated me on Wednesday, you can hate me on Thursday. It's fine. The illness didn't make me a better person. So (laughs) carry on with whatever your normal opinion of me was. I respect that.
3: (laughs) Some of my best philosophical conversations have been with you. And I wanted to know how pain affects cognition because I think that's something that bothers you more than most.
1: Yes. I can't prove it, but I am distinctly dumber than I was. My brain is different. Ten years of constant adrenaline and cortisol do alter the way that you think. It fries certain pathways.
3: Sarah's brain Hands down, one of the best brains I know. And I hate the idea of it sizzling and all this suffering.
2: Snag-A-Job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag-A-Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
3: We're going to swivel to a researcher who studies pain from a very, very different vantage point. So let's fade up onto a scene unfolding on the island nation of Mauritius where an anthropologist is standing next to a bed of coals preparing to photograph a firewalking ritual
4: And at some point some of the locals they called me and they said Dimitris we think you're now one of us you should do the firewalking ritual just like we do and my response to that was uh, well look i don't want to pretend to be one of you I'm still a foreign anthropologist who is here to do my job. I'm here to learn about your customs. And it's very important for me to be able to observe what you're doing uh, as you're doing it. They immediately said, that's fine. Okay, if God wants you to do it, then you'll do it. And I said, trust me, God does not want me to walk on fire. Apparently, I was wrong. Because on the day of the fireworking ritual, somebody tapped me on the shoulder, and I turned around, and I looked at the entire village looking at me, expecting me to walk on fire.
3: Demetrius Zigolades has spent his career studying extreme rituals.
4: And I decided it was either total humiliation and the major disruption of the ritual or just going through with it. And when I came out, uh, people were actually asking me the same kinds of ethnographic questions that I was asking them.
3: Demetrius has traveled the world trying to understand why people voluntarily subject themselves to tortuous levels of
4: pain. So, for example, you have in the Philippines, you have Catholics who on Good Friday would nail themselves on crosses. Uh, Similarly on the day of Asura, you have Shia Muslims who will uh, whip themselves with uh, whips that have blades uh, attached to them.
3: Just reading Demetrius' work can get pretty intense. At the Phuket Vegetarian Festival, for example, celebrants pierce their cheeks
4: and... Some of these piercings are so long and heavy, so that the big skewers that might be three meters across, that they will have to bite down on them at all times and hold them with both hands because otherwise they might just rip their face off.
3: Man. Okay. So I think for a lot of us, the question is, why?
4: I've asked uh, thousands of people why they perform their rituals. And the most common response is uh, some kind of sense of puzzlement. They look at you and say, well, well what do you mean? We just, we just do them. That's what we do. That's who we are.
3: At a firewalking festival in Greece, Dimitris asked a bunch of first-time participants why they decided to remove their shoes and proceed barefoot over a bed of hot coal. Some of them referenced tradition. Some people explained they just had an urge. Some said they weren't really sure why. But... When he asked people much later about why they'd gotten involved that first time, they gave very specific motives. They'd been looking to be healed from some malady or to become fertile.
4: But once you've done it, once you put a skewer through your cheeks, then you have to ask yourself, why did I do that? This uh, effort triggers a search for meaning. And in this way, we construct these post hoc justifications of our actions and our experiences.
3: When we do something that's very taxing, that doesn't have any discernible benefit, we feel really uncomfortable about it. And to feel better, we engage in what's called effort justification, where we retroactively deem the activity as meaningful or important. Do you think that there's potentially like a parallel to even the conversations that we have on a daily basis, right? If I talk to a friend like 10 years after her divorce, well, I remember when she was getting that divorce, right? She turned herself inside out. She would have done anything to make that marriage work. But now, 10 years later, she goes, oh my gosh, that was like the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm so glad Michael left.
4: Absolutely. And this is something uh, adaptive. It helps us uh, cope with everyday life. It helps us move on. Yes, we have a need to uh, justify our actions. Demetrius
3: also suggests painful rituals confer real benefits. During the Cavadi Festival in Mauritius, he measured the stress levels of participants who walked on nails, carried heavy loads in the hot sun and pierced their bodies, sometimes with hundreds of needles. As you might imagine, their stress levels spiked. But a month later, they reported feeling better, healthier than before the cavity.
4: Things get more interesting when we look at who is performing the ritual and how. So we see that people of low socioeconomic status, as well as those who suffer from chronic illness, are actually more likely to perform the ritual. And when they do, they will put more needles in their body and they will suffer more.
3: He explains that extreme rituals provide social benefits. Getting involved demonstrates a commitment to the group and puts you in better standing within the community. He thinks that's why people of low status are likely to participate enthusiastically. They could use the social boost. And don't be tempted to imagine that extreme rituals only happen in faraway places. Fraternity hazing, gang initiations, military traditions, lots of similar formulas. In elementary school, I remember when kids used to pass around packs of big red gum, and we'd all take a piece, and then we would lick the foil wrapper, we'd stick it to our foreheads, and within a minute, the cinnamon flavoring would start to burn. And we sat there, looking at each other with, like, garbage on our foreheads for as long as we could take the pain. Why? Why? Because it was a thing to do in third grade and we were proving ourselves as baby badasses and it made us giggle and feel connected. Everybody's suffering the same thing at the same time.
4: So one thing you're doing there is you're advertising some individual qualities that have to do with your fitness. You're you're cool enough to withstand this. You're strong enough to withstand this. At the same time, you're advertising your commitment to the group's norm because for whatever reason, if that becomes the norm than doing something that requires you paying a a high price to enforce that norm uh, on yourself. That means you're a good and committed member of that community.
3: Pain is often cast in a simple role. The character who enters to pull her hand away from the burning stove and then recedes into the wings. But pain is larger and more complex, performing sometimes as antagonist, sometimes ally. I'm glad to report that Sarah's life isn't as painful as it used to be. There's still hurt, fatigue, and nausea. I've seen Sarah vomit into an empty soda bottle and moving cars with a sniper's aim, but it's better. Still, the pain has changed her. What's the biggest single thing that pain has taken away?
1: Uh, It's a lot. A lot. takes away your ability to be present to the people that you're fighting the illness to continue to be with. So it is a thief. In that
3: way. Is there anything it's given you?
1: Any upsides? Yeah. Yes. There's a lot, actually. Like a lot. Really? Oh, yeah. I remember after my first transplant, it was probably a year later... Standing in line in the pharmacy, and all of a sudden I had tears streaming down my face because I realized it had been four years since I could stand in a line and not have to sit or lay down on the floor while I waited. I found so if you have chronic pain and it is a given and it's not negotiable, how do you want to live your life? And then how do you have to change your mind to meet the person that could live this life and enjoy it? So, like, how do you rise to the occasion of your own life and take joy in it?
3: I want to extend an enormous thank you to Sarah for being so candid and smart, to Demetrius for his time and insights, and, of course, to Irene Tracy, Queen of Pain.
0: Thanks for the hurt. You're welcome anytime. It's a pleasure.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's such a long laugh.
3: All good science stories should end with a cackle and a flesh wound. Next time on Deeply Human, we're talking about lying. Why it's a milestone for toddlers, but a slippery slope for you. Deeply Human is hosted by Dessa and is a co-production of the BBC World Service and American Public Media with iHeartMedia.